It's the 23rd of October, 2016, and this is episode 312 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here, and today I'm joined by one of the other hosts of LTB, Andreas Antonopoulos. A few quick things to mention before we get into it. If you want to catch me in person, I'll be moderating panels and most likely speaking about tokens for the second year in a row at the new Context Conference in San Francisco this November 4th, which is Friday. Tickets for the one-day event are normally $80, but you can use the discount code SPEAKERINVITE, all one word, to save 20%. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com conference to be redirected to their site and to learn more. Hope to see you there. We kick off today's conversation with an update from Andreas's Perpetual World Tour, and then spend the rest of our time digging into the meat of the sidechain Lightning Network Bitcoin scaling conversation that Stephanie and I started a few weeks ago with John Ratcliffe on episode 309. Enjoy the show. You know, of all the people who are kind of doing the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or, you know, this this other way evangelism and actually going around and talking to different groups of people and different kind of characteristics, it's you. I mean, you're you're you've uh, put yourself into this role of a cryptocurrency evangelist and done a really fantastic job. And we don't often talk about kind of the impressions from the road, but I'm super curious after doing this for a couple of years. You know, like how have things changed over time or what types of trends are you seeing now? We just listened on the last episode to the talk you gave recently in uh, Silicon Valley about uh, proof of work. And I thought that that was a really, what, the thing that's really always jumped out at me about the work that you've been doing is it gives you such a great test bed to come up with all of these fantastic talks and just ways of thinking about these things that are old topics, you know, as far as uh, a lot of us are concerned. But I never really thought about how, whether you're talking about kind of like the complexity on money back when complexity equaled work, or, you know, just big when you're talking about, you know, monuments that, that were uh, created by, you know, millions of people, that demonstration of work and the permanence that uh, lends to it. Um, that's, that's, you know, a perspective that certainly has been there for a long time as an obvious comparison, but, certain, but I, ha- I had never noticed it. So I'm just uh, kind of curious. There's not really too much of a specific question here. What kind of trends are you seeing? You know, how's it been? How's it changed over time? How's it now? Well, I think the big difference is that it used to be a much, much smaller, much more tight community with a much clearer understanding of the, of the, I think, core principles that drive this idea. And now it's a much broader, much more mainstream community with a lot of uh, dilution going on in some of the principles. There's a lot of edge cases trying to push this in other directions, push Bitcoin, push cryptocurrencies, push these systems in other directions. There is a lot more bankers, a lot more VCs and investors and big money flowing around, a lot of very polished and smooth marketing. And as a result, there's also a lot more drama. But underneath all of that, there is still you know, a very important core of community that understands and is still guided by strong adherence to these principles that continues to build on the initial vision. And some people do it in terms of technology, you know, inventing new things and, and improving the technology. And, you know, what I do is, is try to kind of plumb the depths of these ideas and, and find new ways of looking at these uh, concepts and expressing them that 
reveal the depth, the genius of the design, the, the depth of the applications, the depth of thought that, that goes into this technology and kind of demonstrates it in ways for uh, a more general audience. So I have no shortage of topics to take a deeper dive. To me, from the very beginning, Bitcoin was like a, a very, very deeply layered onion and the more I learn, the more I uncover, and the deeper I can go in, in understanding these concepts and their nuances and their implications and how they affect the future vision. I think everybody who's on this journey finds that. They find that there are deeper and deeper layers you can uncover of your understanding and, and perception of this thing. And meanwhile, while I'm trying to dig deep, um, other people are expanding the ideas by inventing completely new stuff, which in itself has completely new implications and is also layered. So it's, it's, for me, the, the, there's the, this core, which is this fascinating technology that I keep finding new ways to approach. And then around it is all of this drama and bullshit and money flying around, which I mostly try to ignore. So since we last uh, spoke, I uh, presented a little surprise to the Bitcoin community and probably the broader mainstream audience, which is uh, I just completed a new book, which I had managed to keep under wraps. The book is called The Internet of Money, Volume 1, and it's a collection of talks that I delivered from 2013 to 2016. Uh, this was put together by a group that did the editorial, the copy editing, the proofing, the design, and put together this uh, very nice package of my talks. Uh, they cleaned them up a lot to turn them into a readable format. You know, so obviously conversational video doesn't, uh, doesn't work very well on the page. And, and actually made, them, made me really sound <laughs> a lot smarter than I am. And so this book is a complement to, to my first book. And the internet of money is not about how Bitcoin works. It's about why Bitcoin matters. It's much more philosophical in nature. It's about the nature of money, the nature of Bitcoin, and the implications and these ideas that I've developed through a series of talks. It's a collection of 11 of my talks, and it's called Volume 1 because I hope that uh, I will be doing this again with another collection of talks for Volume 2. In fact, I already have a set of talks that are broader than the first 11 that are in there. It was released on September 7th. It's available in print on Amazon and other booksellers, as well as Open Bazaar for Bitcoin and Purse.io for Bitcoin. And is also available as an ebook edition on Kindle, uh, Kindle Unlimited, Kindle Lending Library, and Kindle Matchbook, where you get the digital copy for free if you have the print copy. So trying to get it into as many hands as possible. And the idea is this is the book that you get for your curmudgeonly uncle who doesn't believe in Bitcoin and doesn't understand what you're talking about, to give them something easy and accessible to read to, to get the bigger picture. So to fully invert the pyramid, uh, will you also be doing this as an audiobook? Uh, well, you know, because it's based on videos, the, the audio already exists. Uh, you know, the soundtrack from the videos is yeah. the audio. Um, I don't know if I'll do it as an audiobook. I mean, I, I was actually not even considering that. But uh, since the book came out, I get asked that question all the time. 
uh, on Twitter. So, you know, it might be a consideration. What I do know is that the publishing team is putting together a plan to have it translated and republished in print and ebook in a, in a number of different languages because we just got a deluge of requests to translate it into six or seven languages almost immediately. So was this book in the works for a long time or did, I mean, like, did you just keep this one a secret or did this kind of pop up and it was mostly done and they just wanted your permission? The book has been in the works for um, eight months approximately. It started at the beginning of the year. My involvement was primarily just like looking at some of the editorial and, and, and <laughs> being very happy with the results. One of my contributions was writing the build system and make files that converted from source code into the various <laughs> formats. I did some of the coding behind the scenes. No, it was a it was an independent project and I'm really, really happy with the results and I, I kept it secrets until the last moment. Well good job on that. Now Andreas, you're working on one other book, right? Is that also secret or are you talking about that one yet? There's the second edition of Mastering Bitcoin that's due out February, March, doing um, some major rework on that to add content around many of the new technologies, segregated witness, uh, payment channels, lightning network, um, and you know many other new technologies as well as enhancing some of the original content. That's due out in March. And then I have my other secret projects, which I'm going to be announcing in a couple of weeks, in three weeks, uh, in Zurich. Uh, so by the time this episode comes out, it's probably going to be a hint floating in the air, and then the announcement will happen in Zurich. Okay, sounds good. Then we won't spoil the surprise. So while I've got you here, we had uh, John Ratcliffe on, who's been on the show before, you remember, talking about payment channels and a number of other things. This time, he was back talking with Stephanie and I about Core's vision for uh, for scaling and why he thinks that and has become convinced that it is the correct idea. And I'd encourage you to listen to the episode to kind of get the full context because it was a long episode, but to poorly summarize, things can't scale on blockchain with Bitcoin because no matter how much space you put there, it's going to be taken up for non-monetary use cases because there is such a demand for non-monetary use cases that utilize the Bitcoin blockchain. And if they don't have the Bitcoin blockchain available, then they will do something else. They will use something else and there's no problem. If they do have the Bitcoin blockchain available as a viable option, then they will use that. And so his basic premise was that everything will move onto side chains except for this core settlement function. And we talked about kind of like, well, what happens when a side chain grows to you know a certain size where it no longer can support itself using this kind of uh, more stable mechanic? And we talked about how you could have layers built on top of layers. So I think this is a vision that you and I have discussed before and is not too out of the ordinary, but I kind of just want to touch base with you and see, you know, is this how you think we're going to scale to? Because this seems aggressively different than the vision we were initially talking about, which was really one of kind of doing everything on chain and having these off-chain solutions as, oh, well, maybe once we get to, you know, hundreds of millions of people using the system or billions of people using the system, then you would need to have secondary layers. But the thought was that you would be able to maintain a base level of users on the simplistic system that is Bitcoin. And that seems to no longer be the plan from what I can tell. I think a lot of things have changed since the original vision and the the genius of the Satoshi white paper and, and Nakamoto consensus is that Nakamoto had a vision that, that really predicted a lot of the things that happened over the next six or seven years. But at the same time, I think uh, a few things became apparent over these six, seven years that changed 
change the picture a bit. I would say probably the biggest thing that has changed is the realization that developing consensus code is very, very difficult. Building systems that remain in consensus and can do so in a predictable and scalable manner is very, very difficult. And so as a result, uh, even though the, the, the project has expanded now so that it has more than 100 active contributors to Bitcoin Core and several other side projects and the entire ecosystem of code around it, we're still finding you know, that it's, it's, it's difficult to write code that remains within consensus. And I think JJ, in his recent presentation for Bitcoin, put it really well, something we've discussed in the past, which is every bug becomes consensus code by definition. Uh, every bug that has ever existed in Bitcoin, if you write an alternative to Bitcoin Core, you try to implement a, a different version or refactor it or whatever, you have to simulate every bug that ever existed because the bug itself defines what consensus is. And as a result, if you deviate and instead of simulating the bug, you do the right thing or the expected or correct behavior, however you want to define that, yeah, you might have the correct behavior, but your correct behavior is outside of consensus. The rest of the network is doing bug. And because you have to process the entire blockchain since Genesis block, you have to carry all of this stuff. So it, it just in general, I think the understanding the consensus is difficult, which means that forks, uh, especially hard forks, are extremely difficult to pull off successfully and can lead to very, very nasty side effects, which you don't want in, in, a, in a multi-billion dollar production runtime economy, as well as some of the nuances between the interplay between attempts to scale and the impact that has on decentralization. I think we might actually eventually find higher plateaus of scaling without affecting decentralization on the main chain. I think we may find that we can rebalance and achieve even more scale in the main chain. But the way things are right now, it's very difficult to do that. Certainly, you can do perhaps one order of magnitude on the main chain, but you can't do three. You can't do four. And we will need to do three or four, especially if you consider non-monetary applications. The bottom line is I mostly agree with John in that if there is capacity, that capacity will be almost instantaneously used by applications. The, the, the number of companies developing to the Bitcoin blockchain is very large. They're all inventing applications. And if, if you have more capacity, that creates the possibility for different applications that weren't possible before. And the space of transactions will expand to fill the capacity of the blockchain almost immediately as, as you expand it. We need layers. We also need a healthy fee system. We also need to consider scaling beyond the, the main chain. And eventually, we will also need to scale the main chain. So I don't think the two things are exclusionary or exclusive of one another. It's not, do we do it in layers or do we do the main layer? I think it's, we do it in layers and we also will do the main layer. But we might do more in layers for the next couple of years. And then, as the maturity has developed, also do the main layer. Right. That makes sense. 
Okay, I have a couple of questions. Um, one is a little bit more kind of just in the weeds here. Um, so as you mentioned, we've, since the beginning of Bitcoin, just been stacking up these bugs, right? Things that went wrong, but because they happened, consensus has to continue to recognize them. So you have these special rules where it's like, treat all blocks up to block 100 using this set of rules and treat all blocks after 101, you know, from 101 on using this following set of rules, because at that point the bug was fixed. And so before that you needed to have such and such to maintain consensus and after you need the other. So um, I understand that. Um, but uh, what I don't understand and what I've never really understood is why can't we at certain points in the Bitcoin life cycle, say after 10 years or whatever, have a checkpointing event where all of the balances as you know the current consensus you know puts them out are codified into something uh, that is tamper evident and then those are used to load essentially a new version of uh, Bitcoin that just takes out all of these fixes and just leaves in the code that is the correct code without the code that does the correction on the back end and then you just start over effectively with the current balances from there and push forward without any of the legacy code that was a problem. And there are, of course, some issues that come up with this, but am I missing anything super obvious here why this is not feasible? What you're describing is feasible. So essentially, clean slate, rebuild the Genesis block to represent the state of all of the things that are in it based on the current most recent implementation of the code. So like, for example, rewrite the entire blockchain from the beginning so it appears as if SegWit or... CSV or any of the other features we added and all of the bug fixes were implemented on day one. And what would the blockchain look under those circumstances and implement something that is functionally the same, even though it's the data structure is completely different and throw away all of the barnacles and all of the code that has to recognize all of the barnacles? Basically, yeah. Well, there, there's two problems with that. Uh, problem number one is that there are specific things in the blockchain that utilize a previous interpretation of, of the rules in order to achieve their function where there's no real way to port that forward without breaking it. So there will be exceptions of things that can't be ported forward. And if everything was monetary value and locked to public keys that we understood, great. But let me give you an example. Let's say you have a value locked against a pay-to-script hash. So it's a three address. Maybe it's a multi-sig, but maybe it's a different script. If you're not talking about a multi-sig application, give me another example. So in the, in the script, it, it could say, if you present this public key, or if you present one of these three, or if 30 days have elapsed and you present this key. So you can have very complex scripts in there. But the way it's encoded in the blockchain, all you see is the hash, the digital fingerprint of that script. And the script itself isn't presented until redemption. It's called a redeem script. And you only present it upon redemption. We don't know what scripts are in there. So there's all of these three addresses that are basically just fingerprints of scripts. We don't know what scripts are in there. What if the script that's in there is a script that uses the old rules for multisig, like a very, very, very specific example. Multisig has a bug. And the multisig has a bug where it actually drops the first byte of the script. So all multisig scripts that exist start with a zero at the beginning. And that zero serves no purpose other than to be thrown away by the script interpretation because there was a bug. 
So every multi-sig script in existence today has that zero in the beginning. Now, if we just had those scripts in the blockchain and we could just say, okay, well, wherever you see that, just take off that leading zero because that's just to serve the bug, then rewrite the code in Bitcoin so it doesn't drop the first thing that's in the stack and therefore we don't need this leading zero anymore. Great. But the problem is we don't have these scripts. We have their fingerprints only. So they're hiding behind that. Then you'd have to implement all this code that says, well, if you present something for which we only had the fingerprint and it turns out to have a leading zero, then actually do the buggy thing that drops the first thing, because that's the only way it's going to get to work. Bottom line, you can't do that. This is what I meant when I said writing consensus code is hard. You can't simply wipe the slate clean. What you can do is you can minimize the impact of a lot of these things and isolate the code that handles a lot of these things and gradually write newer code that doesn't have these bugs. So for example, if you, if you transition to SegWit, and then in SegWit, you have script versioning. So as the script versioning matures and you improve and fix various problems that, that existed in the original script language, eventually, the only time you turn on the old weird code from the olden days is when you're presented with someone trying to redeem something from the past. And most of the network runs on squeaky clean, polished code that's dealing with newer versions of SegWit. So you can do that. You can at least compartmentalize the nastiness. And let me answer my own question too, because as you were explaining that, I realized that, yeah, the, um, from the stuff that I'm working on, right, it's all layers built on top of Bitcoin <laughs> that uses data points embedded into Bitcoin. So if you're doing anything with proof of existence, if you're doing anything with token layers built on top or meta tokens, none of that information would come with because all you're getting is the basic Bitcoin token balances, not any of the transaction information, which is where all that is kept. Correct. Yes. And, and, you know, what, what the system is designed to do and what people actually use it to do based on what it actually does are two massively different things. And you can't simply revert to the theoretical wish of what it, we think it should be doing, because then you're essentially disenfranchising and even confiscating the things that people relied upon. And again, consensus is difficult to build against. So that's one reason you can't do that. The other reason you can't do that is because it's a massively disruptive, non-backwards compatible hard fork that requires everyone to upgrade. And God help you if you have a bug in any of that software uh, when you try to do the upgrade. And if you're talking about a complete rewrite of the entire code base, the chances that you get it right are, are zero. So you know, the other thing is that you're losing all of the, together with all of these barnacles and bugs, you've also got a degree of maturity in this code. As ugly as it is, it's stable. It's ugly and stable. And, you know, consensus code is a special kind of code that forces you to keep ugly but stable over shiny and new. And so this is something that constrains what developers can do. And it means that maybe we can't have the type of scalability at the base layer that we would like. But if we create a very robust base layer that can do settlements, then you can achieve scale at layers above without really compromising anything, in fact, by making the system much, much more flexible. So I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic, and actually I'm very excited by the possibilities of Lightning Network. I think most of the 
people who criticize this scaling roadmap don't really understand what an incredible set of innovations is coming down the pipeline that enables us to do what appears to be a more complex scaling, but which in fact, from an engineering perspective, is much more, much, much more elegant. Back on the side chains for a second. Um, the basic value proposition of sidechain. So, so just just to recap for anybody who didn't listen to the, to the prior episode with John, the idea here is that um, you can use the Bitcoin token, but have a separate blockchain that can have different characteristics. And he basically described this as launching an altcoin just without the coin. Well, I mean that's one way of doing it, but I think probably what we've what what we're now seeing on the roadmap is not really a side chain. I think the the most interesting avenue, the most promising avenue for scaling is Lightning Network, which isn't a side chain, it's an overlay network. And it's an overlay network of off-chain transactions, actual Bitcoin transactions exchanged off-chain by nodes that rely on the trust settlement layer of Bitcoin in order to establish trustless channels between them and which enables us to do all of the heavy lifting on transactions that are not on the blockchain, but with getting all of the security guarantees of the Bitcoin blockchain itself. I think that seems to be the most promising avenue, and it has very, very far-reaching implications. So are you saying that you think that bi-directional payment channels, aka the Lightning Network, is uh, the best way forward, or you're saying that you don't think that sidechains as I was about to describe them are, you know, worthwhile compared to that. Is, is, this, is this a both situation? I, I think everything we're going to discover in Bitcoin is going to be a both. We're going to do everything and the kitchen sink. Um, because there's the innovation without permission means that if somebody thinks that it's useful, they're going to do it. You got to realize that Lightning Networks, which is not exactly bi-directional payment channels, it's bi-directional payment channels with a routing topology, multi-hop bi-directional payment channels with routing, and now, based on the latest spec, with onion routing, similar to what happens in Tor, these have been demonstrated in practice on testnet still, but uh, actual running code, that works and has been simulated to great scale. This stuff is coming down the pipeline first. Uh, Sidechains are still very much discussed as a, as a theoretical possibility, and they require some additional upgrades to the system, whereas as soon as you have SegWit implemented, Lightning Network can be implemented immediately and uh, can immediately deliver some pretty fantastical capabilities. You know, the, other, the thing that I chuckle about is the impact this has on privacy. Most people don't realize what impact this has on privacy. You're going to see transactions on the Bitcoin network that simply represent the clearing balances between two arbitrary nodes, and everything else is going to be encrypted, uh, privately exchanged transactions completely off the network between parties that don't know who the final destination or the original source is, and are not actually ever shown to anyone other than the next hop in the network. The fungibility, privacy, anonymity just went through the roof, and and it comes as a just a sweet little side effect of Lightning Network. So imagine if Tor wasn't the way you anonymize the internet, but Tor was the way we scaled the internet by turning it into a mesh network in the beginning, and that's what Lightning Network is for Bitcoin. 
So with Lightning Network, the essentially payment routing layer, uh, the payment routing topology, as you said, which is basically all of the companies that are running Lightning Network services. Or the nodes, could be clients, could be individuals, doesn't have to be a company, yeah. It's your wallet, your wallet itself is a Lightning node. Yeah, I'm looking forward to understanding that one a bit better. (laughs) I'm glad to see that it's making its way into um, different implementations. That was kind of one of the uh, standout features about the... uh, Purse.io's uh, Bitcoin client with, is that it has SegWit support uh, inherently, and it has um, uh, Lightning support inherently, and there was one other thing that it... It has BIP150, 151, it's end-to-end encryption between the nodes on the Bitcoin peer-to-peer network. Should have been in there ah. from the beginning, uh, is now. Really, really cool. I'm still trying to wrap my head around where we're going with scaling. I think that this makes sense. I think that the Lightning network stuff Makes sense to me in theory, but I really feel like I'm going to have a much better appreciation of it when I, you know, I'm using something that uses that. So, given where we are with that, do you have any sort of uh, estimation or guess at when we're going to start seeing lightning and like actual applications? Let me just prefix this by saying that you know I have been called an optimist before, and I continue to remain optimistic. I think the scaling. I appreciate issue, that about you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I think the scaling issue in terms of the. The big debate between big blocks and small blocks is effectively a non-issue at this point. It's still creating a lot of drama, but it has very few practical implications. The, the bottom line is that the network didn't grind to a halt, didn't cause a, a, a spiraling explosion in fees, didn't cause you know dropped transactions or shut down anything. The fee estimation technology improved dramatically. The network proved to be a lot more resilient than, than some people were saying. And, you know, it's chugging away quite happily, even though it's at full capacity, prioritizing and, and sequencing. And I, I've never had a problem making a transaction. Sometimes I have to pay 10 cents or 12 cents, and it's honestly not a big deal. Now, that means we can't do micropayments, but, you know, that's coming. It's coming in a different way than we originally expected. I think SegWit is probably going to launch in the next month. Um, in terms of code, and then we're going to have a soft fork activation before the end of the year. The moment we have a soft fork activation, I think people underestimate how quickly SegWit can be implemented. Meaning that in order for SegWit to have an impact on the network, wallets have to start creating UTXO that is SegWit spendable, and then they have to spend it with segregated witness transactions. Um, And a lot of the concern has been about how quickly the wallets will develop that code. Here's why I'm an optimist. I think wallets also follow a Pareto distribution, which means that five or six wallet uh, software stacks are responsible for generating probably the vast majority of Bitcoin transactions. So you get Coinbase, Bitstamp, Blockchain Info, Bitcore with, uh, with Bitcoin core behind it, You know, maybe Mycelium or Trezor to implement SegWit. And many of these have said that they're pretty close to implementing it, boom, suddenly 80% of the network is now generating SegWit transactions, and there's enormous incentive in fees to do that. I think we're going to see adoption faster than we expect, and I think we're going to see implementation of SegWit faster than we expect. And as soon as SegWit is live on the network, it opens the door to some very, very critical improvements and some additional layers like Lightning Network you know, I think the pressure on block capacity will start getting alleviated very quickly thereafter. We get up to uh, 3 meg effective capacity almost immediately. 
uh, but with much better resistance to certain denial of service vectors. And then very soon thereafter, we can start seeing the first prototypes for Lightning Network-based wallets. And, and then things get really interesting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas and Adam. Music for this episode comes courtesy of Jared Rubens, and this episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. The magic word for today's episode is all. That's A-L-L. All. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com to enter the magic word today. And finally, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com if you have any questions. See you next time.